Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Thank you for downloading this podcast from Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk. For more podcasts and more information on your number one news and talk station, please visit 702.co.za or capetalk.co.za. Stand up for the law. Stand up for decency. Stand up for compassion. Stand up for respect. Stand up for your community. Stand up for your future. Stand up for South Africa. Leadsa.co.za. Thank you for downloading this podcast. If you like knowing, the brain is for you. If you like a challenge, the brain is for you. If you like to Google yourself once a month, the brain is even for you. Get to our website for more info and you could be the brain. The Naked Scientist on Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk with Reedy Clubby. Hello, Chris. Hello. Good morning. Good morning. Are you well today? Yes, very well, thank you. That's and fantastic. You? I'm on top of the world, thank you. Okay, folks, this is your opportunity. The Naked Scientist is here to answer all your questions related to the world we live in, the functioning of the human body, or anything else that you are curious about. We love your questions on 021-446-0567-011-883-0702. Okay, Chris, I love this one. Thinking out of the box and boosting lateral thought. What's that research all about? Yeah, there's a lovely study published this week by two researchers in Australia. This is Alan Snyder and his PhD student, Richard Chi. They're based at the University of Sydney. And I'm going to nick a line from their paper, which is in the journal PLOS One. It's beautifully written and they quote a great historical scientist, John Maynard Keynes, who wrote in the 1930s, and I quote, the difficulty lies not with the new ideas, but in escaping from the old ones, which ramify into every corner of our minds. In other words, that the world we live in and the way we interact with it is strongly biased by our past experiences. So if you want to think originally and have new ideas about things, you have to try and escape from the ideas and preconceptions you've now built up through experience. Because as Alan Snyder puts it, the brain sacrifices originality for expertise. So how could you do that? Well, interestingly, there are some people out there who, for various reasons, develop conditions like forms of dementia or head injuries, which suddenly disclose these latent talents People who develop certain forms of dementia may, in the course of developing that brain disease, become extremely talented artists or musicians, mm. displaying a talent they've never had before in their life. 
Now, where did this come from? Well, the theory is that if you look at where the damage is in the brains of these people, it tends to be focused on the anterior left temporal lobe, the region of the brain roughly adjacent to where your ear is. And this area of the brain on the left, being the dominant hemisphere, appears to dictate how we approach the world. And we tend to take a hypothesis-driven, top-down approach. So, in other words, when you're trying to solve a problem, you approach it using your prior knowledge. If you inhibit that brain area or damage it, though, it seems to allow the right side of the brain to disclose its creativity and you tend to think more laterally. So what these two researchers did was to recruit 60 people from amongst the staff and students at the university and they used a technique where you pass a very small amount of electricity through the brain which can either increase or decrease the activity of that bit of the brain. And they reduced the activity of the left part of the brain mm -hmm. in some subjects who were doing a simple mathematical logic puzzle. And it was quite clever this because they gave them a training session where they showed them how to rearrange some matchsticks to solve this mathematical puzzle. You had to move one matchstick to make an equation add up. Mm -hmm. And they showed them how to solve one type of equation. That was their training. But what the subjects didn't know is that this was effectively biasing their brain with a priori knowledge. They then asked them to solve a second set of puzzles which they all tried to solve the way that they'd been shown how to solve the first one because that was their experience. Mm. In fact, you needed to think laterally and do it a slightly different way. When the subjects who were in the control group who didn't have any stimulation tried to do this, they were only successful about 20% of the time. But in subjects in whom they inactivated this front left part of the brain, the success rate was 50%, mm. suggesting that they were much less inhibited by what they'd learned before and were thinking outside the box in a much more original way. And so I asked Alan Snyder, uh, what are you going to work on next? And he said, we haven't thought of that yet. So I suggested maybe he give his brain a little bit of stimulation. Um, <laughs> but the bottom line is that this does appear to fit with our understanding based on dementia and other findings about why the brain takes the approach it does to how we work because it's very successful as a mechanism for going about your everyday life but it makes creativity difficult. Perhaps inhibiting that bit of the brain when you want to be creative could be the way to do it. That, that's so fascinating, Chris. And I was hoping you'll give us that quote by jo uh, John Maynard Keynes in, in the 1930s, that the difficulty lies not with the new ideas, but in... in in escaping from the old ones. So, uh, so, so we must always be searching for knowledge, uh, Chris, <laughs> but have a healthy balance and opening our minds to learning new things that could also possibly challenge what we already know. It's true about so many aspects of life, isn't it, that uh, we tend to labour under misapprehensions and preconceptions and that sometimes an open mind is a much better one. I but not always. <laughs> I like that. Okay, it's our open line. Uh, we t rather, we're taking your questions. Our lines are open for you uh, for the Naked Scientist Chris Smith on 021-446-0567, And Chris, I already have an email asking for more information about the electrical brain stimulation that's boosting lateral thought. And I don't know why, of all the stories that you've told us i'm particularly <laughs> interested in that one is there any way we can get more information as well if if you look up uh alan snyder mm -hmm. and this is a l l a n alan snyder s-n-y-d-e-r he's at the center for the mind at the university of sydney and that work was published in the week just gone in the journal plos p-l-o-s plos new word one as mm -hmm. in o-n-e
<laughs> so if you look those things up on the internet, you will find this gentleman and the description. And it's a beautifully written paper. Um, you don't have to be a scientist, really, to understand the paper. It's, it's an excellent paper. Mm. So now I know what I'll be doing straight after the show. Let's go straight to uh, the lines. Nina in Linden. Hi. Hi, really. Hi, Chris. Mm. Hello, um, Nina. I have suffered with um, very bad muscle cramps in my legs for most of my life. And years ago, somebody told me to use cork, you know, cork from a wine bottle mm -hmm. in my bed clothes, which worked for years and years and years. And then suddenly it stopped working. And recently I found some old cork and it seems to be working better again. So first of all, I want to know why does cork work for muscle cramps and, and has the quality of cork changed? You're not using those plastic corks, are you, Nina? No, no. No, proper corks. <laughs> the elastomer ones. Um, I, I don't know the answer to this, but okay. I will speculate. Um, I mean, one possibility is that I, I don't know how you're using the corks, because for people who have bad snoring problems, they stitch cotton reels into the backs of their pyjamas to stop them laying on their back. I presume you're not scattering corks all over your bed and sleeping on them, <laughs> just to keep no, yourself moving I, at night. I just put them into the, into the duvet cover. Okay. Um, one possibility is that there's something in the bark because cork is a bark of a tree and it's possible there's something in the bark which is having some kind of beneficial effect for you. The reason I say that is that quinine, which is the stuff we use to treat malaria, of course, is also used to treat cramps in muscles. And old people who go to their doctor saying, I keep getting woken up at night by leg cramps and things, sometimes a low dose of quinine every day can improve things and quinine is the bark of the conchona tree and it may be that there's something which has a quinine like effect which is in those corks and perhaps it's just affecting you enough which is enabling you to get some relief but i don't know and if anyone does have a clear idea on this or another theory then please do let me know all answers welcome absolutely let's go to is it gerard in centurion hi hi there clever scientist you know but you so knowledgeable if i if it is up to me, I'll give you a Nobel Prize. <laughs> oh, Just well, tell nice. me something, please. I, I'll be watching sport or news or whatever. I'm lying on the couch. And the next moment, there's I've got to scratch my head. There's a little itch. And I give it two or three scratches. And it's gone. What, what actually happens underneath your skin? Hello, Gerard. Um, when we have itchiness, there is a special class of nerve cells, sensory nerve cells, that supply the skin, which are involved in signalling itch. And when they become activated, they trigger the sensation of, I am itchy. And when you scratch an itch, you inhibit those nerve fibres, because when you scratch an itch, you activate pain nerve fibres in the skin. And in the spinal cord the pain fibres inhibit or switch off the itch fibres. And itching, we think, is a protective mechanism which is there to alert you to something that could pose a threat to you because things like parasites, mosquitoes, other biting things which get onto your skin are likely to tickle you. And therefore, that tickle is a sign that, oh, there's something in this part of the body I need to pay attention. And then when you scratch it, uh, you switch off. It's a bit like switching off the alarm on the wall um, by initiating the pain and the pain nerve fibres squirt an inhibitory nerve transmitter onto the itch nerves and they suppress it. Itch is helpful, therefore, but can be pathological in people who have skin irritation syndromes, dermatitis. In those people, it can be terribly distracting and an awful, awful thing to have to keep scratching. Mm. Um, so it's not always beneficial, but it's, it's evolved for beneficial reasons.
Thank you very much for the question, uh, Gerard and Centurion. Trish and Milnerton, welcome. Hi, Chris, hi, Rudy. Mm. Great program, love it. Thank um, you. I've got a question. My mother-in-law always tells us not to sit in the winter sun because it's bad for you, you can get sick. And I say to her, it's the same sun that we have in summertime. And she says, no, it's not. Hello, Trish. Um, I can't... I think I agree with you. I can't think of many differences between the winter sun and the summer sun, apart from the obvious time of day and the duration of the day that the sun shines for, because in high and low latitudes, then obviously the days are going to be longer and shorter, respectively, according to what time of year it is. And so you'll get a bigger dose of sunlight. Um, I can't think of any other reason why it would make a difference, though, so I think you're probably okay. A bit of sunshine is good. Sun reacts with cholesterol. The UV in sunlight reacts with cholesterol in the skin, and it makes cholecalciferol, which is the precursor for vitamin D. And if you don't have enough sunlight, then you can get vitamin D deficient, and this can lead to bone problems and calcium deficiencies. Okay. So a little bit of sun is good. Too much, obviously, is bad because it carries the risk of skin cancer in fair-skinned people like me. Okay, Trish, you can go Thank back you. to mummy and say, I was right. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Bye-bye. Uh, let's go to Julian in Linwood. Hi. Hi, Chris and Rudy. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Sure. I just wanted to find out from Chris if he could explain what the science of meditation is about. Hmm. Hi, Julian. Um, I did actually interview a monk a couple of years ago who is also a molecular biologist. So he started off as a scientist and he decided to eschew science, um, and I don't blame him really, uh, especially if I'm trying to write grants at the moment. Um, he decided to eschew active science in the name of becoming a Buddhist monk. And he then got very interested in meditation. And when you sit and think about things, what's actually going on in your brain? And he has since collaborated with neuroscientists who have put him in brain scanners to see how the brain changes its activity when people go into meditative states. And the answer is... It, not everyone can meditate as effectively as others. It appears to be a practice thing. You learn by listening to your own body effectively to relax in a certain way so that your brain shields out distraction and you can focus on thinking about the things you want to think about. And if you put people in a brain scanner who are in this state, now these are very hard experiments to do because brain scanners are noisy, it's an unusual environment to be in and therefore it's quite hard for a person to relax into a meditating state. But if you do this, you can demonstrate that certain bits of the brain become active or more active than they would be when you're just going about doing normal life and other bits of the brain become less active. And I suspect that it's through training yourself to think in this way that you're able to achieve this cognitive shift. Um, but the, this does appear to provoke relaxation and the ability to focus and to think about the things you want to think about, free from the distraction of other encroaching thoughts. Mm -hmm. Okay, do you meditate, Chris? I don't have time to meditate. I don't even have time to sleep, let alone meditate. I wish I did. <laughs> uh, the problem is, someone asked me this the other day, um, would you like to meditate? And I thought, actually, I would be so bored after about two minutes. I would really upset people because I'd be thinking, hmm, what shall I think about now? And I would be all over the place. Terrible. I, I think I, I need, probably probably need to learn to meditate, and it would probably do me some good, actually. Do you? Chris, you've just made my day because I've tried it, <laughs> and then after 30 seconds, I need to read a book, or I need to take a bath, or I'm thinking about something else that I must do tomorrow, and then I'm trying, I'm trying, and it's just not working. So, no, I don't. 
Well, I feel better too, so that's good. We've, we've helped each other. <laughs> Clement in Bryanston, hi. Hi, good morning, Chris. Morning, everybody. Morning. Um, I, I wonder if this question was ever asked before or answered. Uh, my main question is, when the heart stops beating, uh, one dies. Any animal, any creature dies. But in the case of sleeping, what is it? It makes one fall asleep. Not because you are tired or because you had an injection or whatever, but what goes into one's body that actually makes one fall asleep. Thank you. I'll listen sure. on the radio. Sure, thanks. Hello, Clement. That's a very interesting question. And sleep is a really black art. We, we don't really understand very much about it given how important it is in our lives because we spend about a third of our lives asleep more so when we're little and growing a lot and your sleep demand becomes lower as you get older but it still seems to be very important for health and remaining healthy and active and if you don't have enough sleep then you get unwell and if you take laboratory animals and deprive them of sleep then they can die and if you deprive a human of sleep they become psychotic they start to see things that aren't there and hear things that aren't there and this is used as a form of torture so the brain has this very very strong fundamental need to have sleep but we actually don't know exactly why it needs to have sleep and what special processes happen when we sleep. But we do know that there is various series of or steps that the brain goes through when it's going to sleep and there are various structures that initiate sleep. And this involves something called the reticular formation, which is a collection of nerve cells in the brain stem, the thing that links the main part of the brain to the spinal cord. And these clusters of nerves send connections up throughout the brain and release various chemicals, including things like histamine and noradrenaline and serotonin. And these chemicals make the brain more or less alert accordingly. And when you alter the levels of those things, then the brain goes into various phases of sleep. So when we're dropping off, you relax very deeply, certain nerve populations turn on, they squirt different combinations of chemicals into different bits of the brain, and this alters the activity of whole populations of nerve cells, which then make us drift off to sleep. And when you dream, another structure in the brain called the locus ceruleus, which is in, also in the brainstem, this switches on and seems to trigger dream states at different stages during the night when you have what's called REM sleep. Um, but as far as what the actual purpose of sleep is and, and how it helps us, we just don't know. It's very important, though, because it's so conserved across all animals. You look at a mouse right up to a human, everybody needs to sleep. Oh, yeah. I would really, really be miserable if uh, somebody w were to ban sleeping. It is such a pleasure, Clement. Just do it, just because. Let's get an email from Gabelo who says, What is the genetic, biological, scientific, whichever word is correct, uh, difference, Chris, between wild animals and domestic animals? And how did we identify that as human beings? Uh, so what is, can you just help me out with okay. understanding this slightly because yeah. it's slightly complicated? Yeah, he, he says, he, he just wants to know what is the difference between wild animals and domestic anim animals? What is the genetic uh, difference? Okay, well a really good way of looking at this is to think about dogs because dogs have only been in their present form for, for less than 10,000 years. Um, dogs are descended from wolves and dogs were bred selectively from wolves by humans. 
So what would have happened is that humans would have done their thing in the past and wolves would have done their thing, but wolves probably would have ended up encroaching on human territory and vice versa. Humans would have had food, wolves wanted to get the food. So the two would, groups would have come together and some of those wolves wouldn't necessarily have been nasty and aggressive and wanted to attack the humans. Some of them would, because of genetic diversity, some of them mm. would have been a bit friendlier. The humans would have probably then encouraged those wolves to come and join in and made friends with them. Then those wolves that were friendly and got on well with humans would have been bred with other wolves that were friendly with humans, creating offspring that were even more friendly with humans. And so by humans selecting character traits in the wolves, you end up with a wolf which turns into a dog because it's got all the right behaviour patterns that mean it's a good friend for man rather than being a wolf. And it's exactly the same with wild animals. People would have started with various wild animals and even plants and they would have picked the ones that had the best characteristics that suited their purposes and grown more of them. And if you grow more of something, they're going to breed the genes that make them behave that way into the population more, in other words, enrich for those genes. And as a result, you're going to change the characteristics given enough time. And so this is selective breeding, but over a very long time scale. And that's pretty much where the, the domestic strains of things you see today came from. They were our ancestors selectively choosing the things that suited them best and rearing those to the cost of the ones that were less suitable. So the genes that made them that way became much more common in the population and everything began to look like that. And uh, Imgrad in Durbanville, thanks for your patience. Hi. Hi, Rudy and Chris. How are you this morning? You're very well, thanks. Yeah. Okay. Chris, I want to know from you, um, my mom, when she's got a, a, a lot of arthritis pain, she puts a potato in the bottom of her bed and she swears by it. And this potato, over a, a week or two, goes rock hard. What is causing this potato to go rock hard? Okay. Hmm. Uh, I don't know, but the most likely explanation is that the bed's quite warm and this dries the potato out, um, or that the room is quite dry and it dries the potato out. Potatoes are just balls of water with starch in them, and when you uh, dry them, you're losing water from the potato or heat them up, you lose water from the potato and it just shrivels down. Other than that, I just can't think. Um, I, I'm also not aware of potatoes being a brilliant <laughs> cure for arthritis. Um, I haven't heard that one, but maybe someone else will, will tell us that, that, yep, this definitely works. I hadn't come across it, though. I'm sorry. In fact, I must be honest, I thought the question was about uh, the potato itself, whether it does uh, help cure arthritis, but the, uh, and then it became something else. And in fact, Chris, there was a, an SMS uh, that just came through saying when people are ill, they'll be believe anything um, well, I understand that, but at the same time, Chris, in the science world, I imagine you don't dismiss every any information that comes in your world. Everything must be tested. You have to be very careful mm. not to assign importance to coincidence, yeah, and as humans, we are evolved really to spot patterns in things. And if you do something and the one time you do it, it works for you, you're more likely to tell someone about it. Because you say, do you know, I had this really bad problem the other day, I did this and it got better. But if you'd done that and it hadn't got better, you would have not mentioned it. Mm. Therefore, everyone hears the positives, they don't hear the negatives, and therefore they tend to get overrepresented in people's folklore. Mm. 
And I'm not dismissing the potato arthritis link, um, but it's likely that that's the case, um, that people tend to say, I did this and it got better, and so therefore the thing that people hear about is the positive examples, but not the millions of negative ones. And this is actually called publication bias, because you sometimes see this in science. People will do a study and get no results, so they throw it in the bin. Another person will do the same study. By chance, they get a positive result, so they publish it, and then everyone thinks it's true. So it's really important to do lots and lots of experiments, lots of times, with lots of different people and in lots of different ways sure. to iron out this bias. Mm -hmm. So I agree with you. Chris, always a pleasure chatting to you. Thanks indeed. Thanks for having me. See you soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's Chris Smith, the Naked Scientist. And of course, this conversation will be available for you as a podcast. If you want to know more about the Naked Scientists, you go to their website at on www.thenakedscientists.com.